Hi, it's Arjun with a video update this week for calling Goodbye Europe, Hello Rest of the World. And I think if you followed Super Spike, that's been one of my core themes. I think if I was British, we would call that a bit of a, a cheeky phrase, so to speak. It is meant to be in part pragmatic. There are, as we know, 1.4 billion people in each of China, India, and the rest of Southeast Asia, and sort of unquestionably, the economic growth potential, the energy growth potential is going to be much more significant there than in Europe. So that is part of it. But we do go with this objective because of our prime concern with Europe, which is the uh, energy and especially environmental and climate policies. They've morphed into the uh, spectrum of ideology. And I think we're getting some really concerning outcomes. And it's really been a motivation for creating Super Spike, this notion of the messy energy transition uh, driven by what I'm going to call ill-advised climate-only uh, type policies that we're seeing. And you know, there is a history of when Europe takes significant actions, it doesn't always end well. And we know that from a whole bunch of history that you can look at. And there are some warning signs here in terms of how this energy transition is going. I want to highlight three kind of recent developments or issues. One is the new climate change statement from Barclays. Uh, the second will be this concept of deindustrialization, which Bloomberg had a great article about Germany being post-peak as a superpower on the industrial side. And I'll spend a moment on that. And then finally touch upon uh, Norway's oil demand and EV analysis that I published last week. And then really, what does this all mean for US and Canadian companies in particular? So let me start with um, Barclays. And they published on, I'm going to, sorry, I'm going to reference it here on my iPad. A February 9th, uh, 2024, they updated their climate change statement. There is a summary page and then a, a deeper 12-page document. And we'll link to it in our show notes here. I'm going to just pull up the first three bullets. And I'm going to say that we can see real signs of the IA's net zero report, as well as the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, which we've talked about in the past, is really being all over kind of the continued progression of these climate change statements, which I'm going to say are in a very troubling direction. And I'm going to just quote directly so I don't misquote it. So Barclays' new climate change statement says, no project finance or other direct finance to energy clients for upstream oil and gas expansion projects or related infrastructure. And they go on with a few more sentences. In the International Energy Agency, the IEA's net zero scenario, New long lead time upstream oil and gas projects are not required on a one and a half degree Celsius aligned pathway for current and future parenthetical declining global demand to be satisfied. Investment is needed to support existing assets while clean energy is scaled. Barclays understands the critical importance of energy being secure, reliable, affordable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just the, the last statement is uh, this policy is important lever for reducing our financed emissions and has been informed by engagement with stakeholders, blah, blah, blah. And that last bit refers to Glasgow Financial Lines for Net Zero. So this IEA Net Zero report, yes, it's a scenario. Yes, it has lots of caveats. But here again, yet again, we have an example of a bank, Barclays, taking it literally uh, and saying it does not call for new oil. So they're not. So now they're, uh, they're not going to support new oil and gas uh, expansion projects or related infrastructure. It really is the issue with this report. It has been weaponized. It's been obviously weaponized. And you're seeing some really troubling developments coming out of it, as well as this metric that comes from the GFANS group, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, that says that banks, and the intention of this group is to put pressure on banks and capital markets providers to look at their emissions finance as a core metric. 
and, and there's, there's a lot of issues with that. It presumes that these scenarios are on track to, to be realized. And we all know that the IA's net zero scenario is already way off track. It's not a close call. That report actually had oil demand peaking in 2019. It's going to make an all-time high here in 2024 and probably for the next several years. And I think for the next several decades, but we can debate the longer end of it. The scenario is already off track, yet it is still being cited to not provide uh, new project finance or other direct finance to energy clients for upstream oil and gas expansion projects or related infrastructure. Huge, huge issue. And this emissions finance metric, um, having organizations like this essentially dictate to banks what projects are acceptable and what are not acceptable, hugely, hugely troubling sign. Now, we've seen in the past that sometimes the sustainability groups or the CEOs or the heads of these financial firms put out these kind of statements. And then at lower levels, the regional banker or investment banker who have it will say, well, it doesn't apply to you. Um, that's from on top. It's going to take a lot. These statements are problematic. And I think the question is, do you want to do business with folks that have these types of objectives coming down from the top? And how, um, as companies or as industry, are you going to deal with that? Maybe you don't do business with them. Make the mistake. We've seen this pressure continue to be put on especially Western financial institutions. It's one of my uh, other big issues with uh, the GFANS group. Is this going to target Chinese banks or Indian banks or Middle Eastern banks uh, or Russian banks or, or, or financial institutions around the world? It's going to de facto put disproportionate pressure on Western Europe, the UK, uh, the US and Canada. And of course, those are the financial institutions that primarily support energy companies, especially oil and gas firms in those same areas. Uh, and I think the net effect of all this can be that you will see less financing ultimately going to these traditional sectors. Now, as you all know, my background is as a Wall Street person. Um, we generally prefer less capex, less supply. I'm big focused on profitability. And when you have financing halted, uh, you'd say all else equal, it's probably good for sector profits if companies aren't able to get as many growth projects. And I, I think that's going to be true. So again, if you're an investor, you might say, well, what's so bad about this? Uh, return on capital will be higher for the sector if less projects can go forward. I think that is true. These projects, though, these types of announcements, excuse me, make no mistake, I think are really problematic for the developing world and having a healthier energy environment. I want to go to the longer document. Let's just talk about some of the specific areas Barclays saying at the project level, they're no longer going to support. So Amazon's one of them. Ultra deep water, interesting. Arctic Circle. And as they say specifically, we will not directly finance oil and gas projects in the Arctic Circle. Um, a lot of these companies, a lot of these banks have interpreted that to mean Alaska uh, as the one country or one uh, state, for example, for whatever reason, gets tagged as being in the Arctic Circle, when in fact, most of the oil and gas developments, of course, are well below the actual Arctic Circle line. Not clear whether Norway counts on this metric or Russia, uh, and whether the projects literally have to be in the Arctic Circle or not, so they probably left that loose. Uh, hydraulic fracturing, they're not going to finance projects in uh, hydraulic fracturing in the UK or Europe, where as best as I can tell, there's almost none of those anyway. But why, why does that make sense? Why does it make sense for Barclays to not finance projects that involve fracking in the UK and Europe, but only those two areas? Are they saying it's okay in their language or basically their sentiments to pollute elsewhere? And I don't believe it's pollution, but hey, we can go frack in Africa and, and elsewhere. I mean, there is a history of this, as we know, but they, for some reason, have singled out the UK. Is that going to spread ultimately to US fracking companies? 
um, a really troubling statement. Oil sands, we will not provide direct financing wholly or primarily to be used for the construction of new oil sands exploration production or processing assets or oil sands pipelines. What, what is the oil sands? It's Canada. What, why, why would any Western institution not want to finance oil and gas companies in Canada? Now, you can say we want to hold them to tough standards, and I support that. If you want to say there's a need for Pathways Alliance to move forward, to eliminate the scope one disadvantage that oil sands assets have versus other oil fields, that, that's fine. If you want to put methane restrictions, as this document also does, I actually don't have any issues with that. If you want to hold companies to, to tough um, climate, environmental, and labor standards, go for it. But why, why are we not, why would they not want to support Canada, Canadian oil sands? How's that okay? How can anyone read these documents? How can anyone formulate these documents and think it makes sense to de facto exclude Alaska and de facto exclude Canada? Um, it's, 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 it's really a huge issue. So when they talk about they had lots of stakeholder engagement and lots of different folks looking at it, it's nonsense. There's no chance people with actual knowledge of the energy business really had a voice. Or if they did, their voice was ignored. Uh, it is completely illogical to single out really what are uh, geopolitically secure places for energy supply, Alaska and um, Canada as an example. And what is the message? There's the famous... Uh, Headline from President Ford to New York City, drop dead. I think New York Daily News uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, something like that. But what's the message to the other 7 billion people on Earth who's a fraction of the energy we do and where this line that future demand will be declined is not factually true? It's true in some IA net zero scenario that is a political statement that is already way off track, right? For current, future, and declining global demand. Give me a break. We're already way off track for that. What is the message from Barclays to the other 7 billion people on earth and how they're going to meet their energy needs from all sources? They're going to do a whole bunch of solar and wind, and I would hope that will get financed. They're also going to need natural gas. They're going to choose to do coal. Even if Barclays isn't uh, financing thermal coal comp companies in the US or the UK or wherever, China Coal, India Coal, whatever their names are, Coal India, uh, they're going to be doing it on their own. Um, nuclear, what about that? These rest of the world needs a lot of energy. And what is the message to these people? They're going to need gas. They're going to need oil. They're going to need a whole bunch of traditional energy to go with the new stuff. Well, let's talk about deindustrialization and uh, the IEA to its credit. And they've always had good data. So my critique of IEA leadership should not be confused with the good people who do the work on actually uh, tabulating a lot of great energy data, including this Electricity 2024 report. So this looks at energy prices in a range of uh, uh, different countries and regions. And what really jumps out is Germany's much higher electricity prices than many other key regions. I mean, Italy's off the charts here. The EU overall is high. France, to its credit, and we all know France is whatever, 70, 75% nuclear. Uh, they have very competitive electricity prices to their credit. Uh, Norway, of course, is overwhelmingly hydropower, or it only has a lot of it. To their credit, very low electricity prices. And what is remarkable, of course, is the United States, which has nuclear 15 to 20% of our mix, I want to say. We have some hydropower. I want to say that's single digits. But it's obviously overwhelmingly natural gas that is contributing to our very inexpensive electricity prices here in the US. And I was surprised to see that actually China, and this is electricity prices to uh, major industrial uh, companies or, or the industrial sector. I didn't realize China actually had higher electricity prices than the US. I probably have to check that data. 
And Germany, while it's only a spiked uh, post-Russia, Ukraine, and all the challenges there, and it's come down in the last year or so, even prior to that, 2019, which is pre-COVID, um, their electricity prices are higher. And you're starting to see it come through in this industrial production data. Uh, the blue line is Germany. The white line is U.S. It's an index of industrial production. It's obviously from Bloomberg. And Europe is now in obvious structural decline. It actually peaked in, I want to say, 2018 period. And this could be a host of reasons. It's not necessarily purely because electricity prices are high. That clearly is a factor. It can be for a whole host of reasons. But it, it's a troubling sign. Uh, and some of this decline seems to be accelerating now. Data can always be volatile, and, and we'll see how this trend progresses. But this issue of deindustrialization, and I'm sorry to go back to it. It's probably not the best practice to go backwards here. But you have these very ideological climate-only policies. You do have if you want to call it bad luck, uh, Russia invading Ukraine and cutting off gas supply to Germany. Although I think someone someone warned them about that. I can't remember who it was. Some some leading politician had warned them about that. And I think got laughed at. But regardless, um, Germany with high electricity prices, not good for its industrial base. And I think this is an issue set to go get worse. And it is worth understanding to what degree are these ill-advised uh, policies that are not based in any sort of economic or energy supply-demand reality uh, causing deindustrialization. That can be a, a, a very problematic issue that's arisen. Let me turn to the issue of Norway and their oil demand uh, patterns versus their EV ramp. So I did write about this last week in Super Spiked. I think to make a long story short, since I talked about it, Big EV ramp is now 80% plus the sales. It's still working through the fleet. I want to say we're past the 20% of the fleet mark. But what is remarkable is that the declines in gasoline demand, which are the red bars, have been essentially offset uh, and previously more than offset by gains in all other products, which are diesel, jet fuel, pet cams, some LPGs, and so forth. And if you really stop at the pre period prior to COVID, Norwegian oil demand was actually up. Um, and you can say, well, EVs are still have to grow in the fleet and this stuff. And Norway had population expansion. I did not realize that population is growing. I want to say 18, 19% over this period, which is a decent number. If you adjust for population, look at on a per capita basis, oil demand is still sort of flat or slightly up. But who had Norwegian oil demand growing in the first place? No, I mean, no one did. The idea, I mean, Europe is generally mature, is irrespective of whatever you think about their climate and energy policies. Yet prior to COVID, uh, Norway was on track for actually a pretty good outcome, despite massive growth, all policy-driven in their electric vehicle mix. And since COVID, that demand has gotten hit. It looks like Europe, Norway excuse me, took a big hit due to COVID, and they're now kind of trying to get back on their feet. And you know, maybe some of these recent other, you know, all other oil demand stats are looking a little bit better. And yes, there's still probably another 15,000 barrels a day of gasoline demand to go. But our key message is here is you can ramp EVs all you want. It is really hard to kill oil demand. Really, really hard. This is a mature country. It's mostly homogenous. Uh, you know, they've had some population growth. They've had massive support to build out their, their EV fleet and their EV mix. Yet oil demand is, let's just call it flat. Uh, it is really, really hard to kill oil demand. What happens when we start getting to people moving up? the economic and energy S-curve in these huge billion people chunks, China, India, rest of Southeast Asia, someday Africa, and we're going to include Latin America at some point here as well in terms of the fate of uh, all these different groups of really sizable populations. 
Not always going to be a smooth line. I think China is going to have some success ramping up their EV fleet. There is a question of whether gasoline could plateau here as uh, their demand possibly uh, peaks for gasoline. But there's the whole rest of the barrel. Globally, gasoline is only about a quarter of the oil demand barrel. And in this very ideal scenario, a homogenous, rich country, which, by the way, is blessed with oil and gas and blessed with hydropower, even they have not been able to kill oil demand. And it's a really important lesson to take away and go back to that IEA net zero report. Where is there evidence that oil demand will be declining absent recession? There's no evidence of it. Why is this the basis for Barclays statements? How is this okay? How can people not just look at these numbers and say, hey, maybe we should question our ideology at least a little bit. And if this is something we want to address oil demand, are we sure we're doing it in a healthy way? What about the other 7 billion people on earth? Where is all that critical thinking? It's not that hard. This data is accessible. You don't have to be a Wall Street analyst to get this data today. Let me talk about US and Canada and really this question of will we be, I'm going to include Canada in the way I'm American, I'm going to include Canada. Will, be, will we be part of the problem or will we be part of the solution? And I think we'll have to start with the financial institutions like we did with Europe with Barclays. There is a lot of pressure on the US investment banks and the major capital markets providers to follow in the path of these European institutions. And even if it's a, even if it's a slow wind down there, I know that Barclays is going to have a local banker saying, oh, those statements don't apply to us. We're still going to bank you. Fine. Do you trust that? How long is that going to last? But what about our banks? Are you sure they're going to stay committed? I hope they will. You know, it always feels like pragmatism is starting to creep into the conversation, but I think that's what I want to believe. What, what it, Barclays just put this out on February 9th, like a week ago, not even a week ago, it's five, four days ago. Where's the pragmatism in this Barclays climate change statement? Right? So are we sure? And I actually, in this case, have more hope for the Canadian banks. To me, they are more likely to stay committed to their Canadian clients. I'm very concerned about American banks over the long run as the pressure continues. And as this lack of sort of basic energy literacy and understanding and this unwillingness to examine when your core assumptions have not come true. Um, look, again, Norwegian oil demand is basically flat despite a massive EV ramp. Even if you eliminate the remaining 15,000 barrels a day of gasoline demand once it's 100% of the fleet, you're not getting any different outcome. And maybe they're going to actually recover from COVID. Are we going to be part of the problem or part of the solution? You know, if you are, you know, part of the developing world, can you count on, will you have access to American and Canadian oil and natural gas resources? There is massive energy growth coming in places that are not inherently long crude oil or natural gas. And as I've said before, for China, India, rest of Southeast Asia, where that statement is largely true, there's going to be huge motivation to do what's next. They're going to want to do solar and wind because once it's up and running, it is a de facto domestic resource, irrespective of where those panels and turbines came from. And, and I think they're going to be motivated to do all other forms of new technology, some of which we don't even know yet. Nuclear will be part of the mix. Unfortunately, if you're a climate person, coal is for sure going to be part of the mix. It may take share from natural gas or keep natural gas from having an even greater share because it's cheaper to do coal than imported LNG. But are we going to be part of the solution? And I will say, to the credit of these countries, I think the Middle East countries, United Arab Emirates, Saudi, they want to be part of the solution. As best as I can tell from Adnoc and Saudi Aramco, two respected, well-run companies, they're on track to be part of the solution. Um, sadly or frighteningly as an American, 
I'll say this as an American, Russia looks like they want to be part of the solution, providing their energy to the developing world. Why are we not proactively touting American strength on oil, natural gas, uh, LNG as part of natural gas, but also our new technologies? Tesla is a massive success. I support electric vehicle technology, battery storage. Maybe it's heat pumps down the road. All the new stuff that Silicon Valley and Austin and Houston and all these different areas of energy innovation are focusing on, that should be, we should be exporting all of it. We should be doing this from a position of strength. I think the question is, what other areas are welcoming for capital spending? So there is a need to provide oil and gas to the rest of the world. Unfortunately, uh, we still have Texas here in the United States where we can take some comfort. I hope we can count on the province of Alberta in Canada. Uh, North Dakota, of course, has been a, a state where development's been okay. Um, what other regions should we be looking at that will be welcoming to CapEx? There's always geopolitical issues when you go to the rest of the world, but as we can see, there are geopolitical issues in the United States, in Canada, and in Western Europe. And the final point, perhaps I already addressed it, is this LNG pause. It's the opposite of sensible leadership. It is creating an uncertainty. It's creating a divisiveness. Who needs LNG, which I think most people have never really heard of unless you're an energy person? Who needs that to be part of the culture war? It's insane. If you want permits for transmission lines and solar installations, why would you create a new permitting delay in a different form of energy? Why are we picking winners and losers? If there's an, you know, listen, pragmatically, are there too many LNG projects going forward down the road? Probably. Are they all going to go forward? No, they're not. Uh, you know, is there a need to understand the overall impact on domestic pricing? Sure. Is there a need to understand their overall footprint and emissions and all these metrics? Of course there is. That doesn't mean you need to do a pause that came down the way it did. That's the problem. It's now created a new geopolitical element to this, which is totally unneeded and totally unhelpful. Absolutely, one could have addressed legitimate concerns about the pace of our buildup and some of its impacts. There's no way that this was the best way to do it. It is the opposite of sensible leadership. How is it even a question that we need all of the above energy, including a whole bunch of the new stuff? Our oil and gas hold it to a high standard on methane, on labor, on other factors, hold it to a high, hold the companies to a high standard, then ensure it's part of the solution. Are we part of the solution in America or are we going to be part of the problem? So what are the takeaways for corporates and investors? I've said it many times now, I don't think demand is anywhere in sight. So if you're an energy company, what are the future supply opportunities you are pursuing? And there's no rush. There is no shame. No one's calling for volume growth for the sake of volume growth. It is absolutely an acceptable strategy to prioritize dividends and stock buybacks while you await whatever you're going to do next. But as I discussed at the Nate conference last week, which I was very proud to attend, I was a keynote lunch speaker, uh, the North American Prospect Exhibition, I hope I got the acronym correct, in Houston. We need new ideas. And that might be different countries, it might be different basins, uh, it might be some traditional basins that have gotten overlooked as the world has been sort of Permian Basin, U.S. Shell dominated. What is your company doing to pursue new and different ideas? We all know that policy has always been a source of risk uh, and volatility, and that's only increasing. There's no science that that's on track to get better. I want to believe pragmatism will win out someday. Unfortunately, Barclays is a sharp reminder that we're nowhere near on the track for pragmatism. Fortress balance sheet is something I personally believe very strongly in. 
especially if you have a volatile business, if you're exposed to oil, natural gas, spot pricing, or refined product margins. And companies in these areas sometimes have a mix of lower and higher volatile businesses. But super volatile or macro backdrop is in part due to the policy risk. It is in part due to the uncertainty of how things will progress. There can certainly be periods where, hey, I, it's possible gasoline demand could peak uh, at least temporarily as China continues to move up the EV ramp. What's that going to mean for product margins? Will uh, some set of closures happen first? There's going to be a lot of volatility driven by all that's going on in the energy evolution that we're seeing in terms of policy, in terms of specific products and so forth. How do you prepare for inevitable downturns where usually the best time to really add to a business or to take advantage of things that are currently out of favor? All of that to me supports fortress balance sheet. I think if you have a low volatility business, there is the case to be made to have higher amounts of leverage, but it is still about ensuring that when the time comes to pounce, you are able to do so without having to rely too much, if at all, on external financial institutions. I don't know. It may be a slow drip, but I do think you have to be, well, the best place to be would be to have things in your control. Maybe I'll say it positively like that is ideally you have things in your own control from a financing perspective. And how are companies diversifying their financing options and strategies? Like, I haven't discussed defense in a while. I was probably hopeful it was starting to go away and that pragmatism was coming in. Um, it can be a slow drip. It's probably a bigger issue for medium and smaller companies. Though I know with the smaller companies, often they feel like, well, I know my local banker here in Texas or Oklahoma, and I'm going to be fine. And these things are slow drips. And one day the world changes. And who's going to be there at the trough of the cycle? And who's going to be there when there's dis dislocation? How do you ensure that um, you can do it from internal sources as much as possible? These are all the core elements we're trying to get at uh, in terms of how we think about financing. So I'm going to end this video on a personal note. And these are meant to be sort of lighthearted and they're definitely not to be meant to be lectures. And I'm a little concerned that this is going to morph into lecture mode, but I will try my best not to. But there is this issue of being sincere in leadership styles versus what I think has become the policy of appeasement. And you see a lot of that in some of these recent announcements. And so if you take an example, you've got a climate NGO that's coming after your company or your industry. It doesn't mean there's zero legitimate points that they're making. I have come to appreciate that I think methane is something that can be uh, no longer flared and vented. That is something that I had not spent a lot of time on historically. I've heard all the critiques and it actually seems like a reasonable thing that can be addressed. But I think we have to be very clear on what we're talking about here. Um, you will never, ever in a gazillion years be able to convince the climate NGO that you are worthy of continuing as a company. Their goal is to put you out of business. That is clear and obvious. Look at any of their statements on LinkedIn, Twitter, public statements, white papers they do. It is all about the traditional oil and gas business going away, right? That fact does not mean there's nothing to be done on methane. Right. So how do one how does one go away from statements of appeasement, which, if I'm being very blunt about this, is often how some of the ESG type slides and books feel, versus what I'm going to call sincere leadership. Here's what we're actually doing. Here's why we think our business is important. Here's the energy we're providing to the rest of the world. Um, people need oil. They need natural gas. The demand is growing. And frankly, even if it was shrinking, which I don't think it will be. Here's why our company is going to be lower cost, how we're going to be profitable, how our balance sheet's strong. And on some of these topics, 
that now are in the culture war, unfortunately. And it can be related to climate. It can be related to diversity. No one needs individual slides. And I, it's easy for me to say as an analyst, what folks could need is real leadership and sincere statements embedded into the overall presentation framework. We're sanctioning a new project. Here's its profitability. Here's its cost of supply. And by the way, we're using, in this case, local labor, or, or maybe you're not. Uh, here's what we're doing to ensure the emissions are as low as possible, or at least at whatever the competitive benchmark should be. And so here's what we're doing on all these different metrics. Have it be part of the presentations. That's fine. It is the slides of appeasement where I think corporate America is getting into trouble. And I think all we'd ask for, all I'd ask for is show sincerity. You're never going to appease the haters. And we see that time and time and time again. I'm going to apologize if this comes across as lecturing. I don't mean it as such. I'm asking for sincere leadership on these topics, not the um, statements of appeasement as we've seen as large parts of this video today. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you very much.